You're listening to the Prison Poetry Workshop Podcast. I'm Ren Smith. Here we present readings, commentary, recordings, and stories about the little-known and even less understood literary tradition of prison poetry. Poetry offers prisoners an unfettered way to explore and give meaning to their stories, potentially changing their lives. But what about the people who helped them get there? What does the process look like from the other side? That's something Judith Tenenbaum has written about. She developed rich relationships with the San Quentin poets she's taught starting in the 1980s, relationships that have only deepened since. Judith was an angel. I mean, she, she worked so hard. And she was so dedicated to bringing in the programs. That's Elmo Chapman. He spent 33 years in prison in California and only just got out in 2012. He was part of a program that Judith ended up running, and he considered her, as he mentions, an angel. She brought in um, Czeslaw Milos, this real famous uh, um, Polish um, poet who wrote about the Holocaust and stuff he went through. Um, she brought in numerous, uh, you know, published poets, you know, famous poets. Um, yeah, it was great. But what was entering a maximum security facility like from her perspective? In one way, kind of enchanting. She immediately found herself swept up in the vernacular of the place. I was so impressed by the language that I was hearing around me. I mean, the, that my students spoke and that guards spoke, and they could just come up with these quick lines and so fast, and they were clever. And, you know, a lot of them ended up being lines that were said a lot, but they, you know, the first hearing, they were so clever, and they could just go be so fast. So I was always just taking notes on what people were saying because it just impressed me so much. And it didn't, that didn't make me be able to do that any better, but it definitely expanded my love of language. And... Um, yeah, so I was very affected by all of that. Eventually, Judith wrote a book about her experiences called Disguised as a Poem, My Years Teaching Poetry at San Quentin. Her website explains that it's a deeply personal account of what it's like to try to reach across the walls that divide the prison from the outside world, with poetry as a bridge to that journey. That it's a book about the deaths involved in prison culture and a trust that is built slowly through time. Judith reads from a passage describing Elmo. For 200 weeks, we would meet on Mondays in this buried room. At 6.30 that first week and each week thereafter, I welcomed my students. Elmo, tall, black, and well-muscled, loved the poems of Pablo Neruda and was himself a master of metaphor. Though younger than I by 10 years, Elmo recognized what he called my child of the 60s sensibilities. He himself had grown up in a beach town north of Los Angeles and had wanted to attend art school in New York City. Elmo watched me walk into San Quentin as though I were a traveler in some foreign land, and he generously shared information he knew I wouldn't find on any of the maps given out by the official tourist office. The underground guidebook Elmo opened for me included stories of his own experience and how this experience shaped the man he'd become. Elmo, who has since been released, landed in San Quentin after a conflict between his little brother Kenneth 
and her rival spun out of control. I was convicted of murder, but it wasn't by my own hand. I was with my little brother when he killed somebody, and I helped him cover up the crime and refused to testify against him, and um, basically was a, a, convicted of um, being an accomplice. When they were arrested, Kenneth was 19 and he was 20. Elmo says they weren't prepared for the realities of prison life. How do you prep yourself for being placed in an alien and hostile environment? You know, you just resolve that you're going to survive. Um, within the first week in the reception center, my brother and I witnessed this guy get killed. And he's my younger brother just by a year. But I sat him down after that and told him, don't ever let that happen to you. Elmo hasn't seen him since that first year. He says prison officials have been sure to keep them in separate facilities. It was very clear to them that my, the basis of my whole conviction was that I just wouldn't snitch on them, I wouldn't turn on them. And I guess they figured if I was willing to sacrifice all of that, that our bond was such that, that you know, we'd act as one, so to speak. I don't know, I, I can't read their minds, but. Elmo passed his time studying as much as he could. As time went on, that got easier. He acquired degrees, did legal research, and became a clerk at San Quentin. By the 80s, he says, San Quentin was transforming itself. It changed when I was there because San Quentin, even though it's this old, dungeonous building, it's in the heart of the Bay Area. Anywhere here in the Bay Area, you see that prison out in the Bay. Um, and as the door started opening, there was all kinds of groups that wanted to come in there based on curiosity, whatever they wanted to teach classes, they wanted to, you know, um, do something. And um, I was kind of like one of the early recipients of that. But after I left, the doors was like a floodgate. There were all kind of programs coming in after that, all through the 90s and the, and the thousands, 2000s. Elmo even earned a bachelor's degree. At the time we graduated, the um, warden at the time, Daniel Vasquez, he wanted to give a big ceremony for us, all that. And he did some research and realized that in the then 137-year uh, history of that prison, uh, we were the first three inmates that ever earned a four-year college degree while at the prison. At some point, Elmo, the college graduate, started writing a lot of poetry. But it wasn't like he had literary aspirations. Prison, by definition, is about isolation, man. And I spent a long time there. And, you know, as a natural man, the, the thing you miss most is, you know, the comfort of a woman. Um, I had some great relationships when I was young. And I ended up having some good ones in the joint as well. But I couldn't spend a lot of time with those women. And so I wrote them poems instead. Here's Elmo reading one that really gets to his yearnings. My love is a moon pulling at the seas of your silent soul, making wind and waves and white water that lap higher and higher upon the shores of your summer body. Splash and crash, to and fro, in and out, in and out, in and onto forever. Tomorrow and always will I be yours. You are the beautiful black night which holds me high in the midnight sky, a lunar mystery for the world to behold as it streaks blindly across the universe 
past our Capricorn cottage in the east, where we procreate stars and planets and dreams, the seeds of solar systems, copycat worlds of lonely people like you and I, who on occasion find each other and become new moons pulling at the fabric of life, plucking black holes out of the cold darkness, windows to reveal secrets, too sensuous to tell, too satisfying to share, except in that moment when the heat of our forbidden passion ignites. When Elmo landed in her class, Judith helped him branch out. She named her book about San Quentin after a poem he wrote, disguised as a poem. And here she is reading another. Okay, so this is, um, This Must Be the Blues by Elmo Chapman. This must be the blues, not the 501 kind, but the real thing. The kind of blues that weigh a man down, lead belly blues, more bitter than sweet. The kind that are hard to get used to. I look at myself in the mirror and see the blues etched in the lines of my face. Blue like varicose veins, blue like a drowned man. Even the whites of my eyes have turned yellow with the blues. I'm just glad my blood ain't blue. Times have been hard, I've been living by the yard, and won't nobody give me an inch. I lean back in my chair and shake my heavy head, feel the sun sharp and warm on my tired black face, and for that moment, things don't seem too bad. But then, somebody's dog bites me, the police is jamming me for some ID, I ain't got a dime for the phone call, and the blues is laughing in my face again. Hi, this is MCI USA operator. I have an international collect call from Spoon Jackson, an inmate at a California State Corrections Facility. This call and your telephone number are recorded. Will you accept the charges? Judith also grew close to another prisoner, a poet named Spoon Jackson. I sat down to breakfast my first morning in prison in a dining hall stuffed with prisoners. This is the opening to a Swedish documentary called At Night I Fly, where the filmmakers interviewed prison artists like Spoon. I was ignorant about all prison ways. I came from the desert, the natural world, purple and red clay mountains, open spaces, and there was nothing natural about cells. Elmo says that Spoon is a pretty enigmatic character. If people thought I was standoffish, they thought Spoon was totally inaccessible. <laughs> Spoon was always kind of real standoffish. I mean, he used to wear these dark glasses and kind of have this posture, and that's the way he did it. When Judith met Spoon, he handed her a poem and walked away. The poem was called No Beauty and Cell Bars. Restless, unable to sleep, keys, bars, guns being racked. Year after year, Endless echoes of steel kissing steel. Noise, constant yelling, nothing said, vegetating faces, lost faces, dusted faces. A lifer, a dreamer, tomorrow's a dream, yesterday's a memory, both a passing of a cloud. How I long for the silence of a raindrop falling gently to earth, the magnificence of a rose blooming into its many hues of color, the brilliance of a rainbow when it sweetly lights up the sky after a pounding rainfall, picnics in a rich green meadow. We saw the beauty in butterflies. We made it our symbol. Tiny grains of sand, one hourglass, a tear that may engender a waterfall. The memories, the dreams are now. Love is now. 
There's no beauty in cell bars. When Spoon showed up in her class, Judith was eager to engage with him. But as Elmo said, that's not the easiest thing to do. Like I said, he didn't talk, and he has a, had a kind of loping walk, sort of, and he didn't take up more than his space. He wasn't that kind of energy. You know, he actually kind of restrained his space because he would make those little half circles that he'd sit in. I'm somebody who kind of leans into space usually when I'm talking to somebody and I'm engaged, and he kind of rested on the edge of the space. Although Spoon wasn't very talkative, whenever he did speak, he was sure to be direct and honest. You know, in, the, in that beginning writing, and poetry touched him, he was just looking for what he called real, you know, which a lot of the guys use that word real, but Spoon really uses that word. Here, in the documentary, At Night I Fly, Spoon argues with a correctional officer about the merits of prisons. Well, I'm cool with living in the moment and, and being here because I have to, but I'd still prefer oh, absolutely. to be physically free. Mm-hmm. And this place would never be my home. It would never, I would never... Uh, it's just like slavery would never have been my home if I had to be a slave. That's what I equated to. I would never be my home. I can't think of it in that term. If I think of it in them terms, then I mean that I accept the, the, the whole of what society has heaped up on me. Because I, like I said, I don't have no problem with paying for what I did do. I don't have no problem with that. But don't heap anything on me just because of certain things. You don't have this thing because of the color of my skin, because this is a racist country, still is. You know, everybody ain't racist, but it is a racist country. The institutions are racist and everything. The judicial system is racist. But that doesn't stop you because I'm a black man from doing what I got to do. When, after four years, Judith's classes at San Quentin came to an end, Elmo had an idea. His assignment to me was that I should write about the four years that I had just lived through from my point of view, because point of view had been a very contentious subject in our class, whereas I was very interested in point of view, writing in other people's point of views, and my student mostly felt that writing in point of view was writing one's own point of view, so it had been a point of conversation. So he told me to write about the four years from my point of view. That's when Judith wrote her first book about prison, a process she wasn't eager to repeat. That, that first book, especially disguised as a poem that was about those four years, that was in response to Elmo's assignment, was a very hard book to write and a very long book to write. But she'd been writing back and forth with Spoon for years. In about 2006, I get this one letter, and I'm sitting there on the couch, and I'm reading this letter, and he's suggesting that he and I write a book together. And I read that first suggestion of that, and my whole spirit is set to say no because I'd already written Disguised as a poem. I'd already said what I had to say about the years teaching in prison, said it as well as I could. Um, And because I knew it was going to be hard. I knew that working on a long project with somebody in prison, it was going to all go through the mailroom. It was going to just be hard. But Judith somehow decided to write the book anyway. And the book, a two-person memoir called By Heart, Poetry, Prison, and Two Lives, was published in 2010. Four years, two books. So why does she find the intersection of prison and poetry so important? You know, I mean, the answer that's given most often is one about um, that most people in prison get out and that we're better neighbors if, you know, 
then that's a true answer. I mean, it's true. If you're going to have somebody in next living next to you in the world, you want that person's soul to be a little bit alive, you know. So I think that's a true answer. But that's not my answer. I mean, my answer is that we are all human beings, and that we all need each other, and we all need our souls and spirits and and capacities to be as healthy and lively as possible and that just because people are hidden from us doesn't mean that they're not part of us. To close today's show, here's one more poem. This one by Spoon Jackson from the short film By Heart, Poetry, Prison, and Two Lives. There were hardly any fences on the river bottom where we lived. The soft sands rolled under and past the Black Bridge. Black Bridge was all still with boats like small biscuits. When I lay under the bridge and the trains ran across, I felt its power like a herd of elephants or bison stampeding across the sky. At 19, one cannot grasp the depths of no parole life sentence. There's nothing to compare it to other than death. At 19, one does not think he will do a life sentence. A life sentence do not sink in immediately. It can take seven to 10 years to begin to understand. Life without the possibility of parole is too big to grasp or come to grips with in the moment. I'm Ren Smith. We'll be back next week with more prison poetry. To find out how you can lend your voice to our poetry archive, go to prisonpoetryworkshop.org.